Open your Bibles to Matthew, Gospel according to Matthew. Um, I know you guys have heard me say a number of times just how excited I am about this uh, portion of the series um, and humbled, and I mean it. It's just an incredible uh, portion of Scripture and, and difficult, honestly difficult. Um, and I don't think difficult because God's Word is not sufficiently clear, difficult, because I think all of us come to the text, and we need to recognize this with particular traditions. Um, As you guys get there, I'll just uh, quote um, Dr. White here. He says, the person who says they have no traditions is the one that is plagued with the most of them, uh, because you don't check, uh, and you don't cross-examine even yourself, and see what your traditions are and if you're imposing something upon the text. And so it, it can be difficult because we come to the text of God's Word uh, in a particular context, in a particular culture, maybe with certain things that were said to us or things we embraced. And um, I believe that if we allow the text to speak for itself and we let the Bible speak as a whole, um, we'll begin to see uh, the law of God in a, in, a, in a very clear, beautiful, and even different way in some respects. So I'll read the text, we'll pray, and then begin to unpack it together. The Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17, hear now the words of the living God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not And iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven thus far as the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray that you'd bless. Lord, now as we come to your word, it's a gift. So I pray that you would bless us, God, with your spirit and understanding. God, grant to us eyes that see clearly. Help us, God, to be encouraged by your word, lifted up, Lord, washed over and transformed, renewed in our minds, and allow for us, God, to be willing even to let go of um, false um, concepts, beliefs, things that we've adopted, Lord, in our own thinking, Lord, that do not comport with Your Word. I pray, God, that You would allow this message, God, and the truths that are taught, I pray that You would allow it to open the eyes of Your people, Lord, so that they can come and see Jesus for who He is and trust in Him. And I pray that You would allow, Lord, the children in this room under the hearing of the gospel to come to You. And those of us in this room that do know You to be encouraged by it. And I pray that You would allow us, God, to think critically, God, to, Lord, hear something from Your Word, be changed by it, and then remember it, God, so we can use it uh, for Your glory and Your purposes. I pray all this and that You would get me out of the way, God. I pray that you'd use this message around the world to change your church for your glory. And I pray, Lord, that I would decrease and you would increase. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So Matthew 5, 17, hopefully by the end of this, you'll actually have it memorized just from me talking about it so much, right? So Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the portion that I'm on right now is do not think, there's more, okay, (laughs) that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. We're going to hang there for a minute. I told you guys last week, we're going to do sort of a bird's eye view, right? And then we're going to come down and we're going to walk around a bit in the streets and sort of ask questions and answer questions. And so that's where we're at right now. Hopefully by next week, we'll get into what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law. But as of right now, we're going to still ask more questions and dig into the text of God's word. What does Jesus mean? Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I think, you know, that can be a startling statement by Jesus if you're a Christian and you thought wrongly about the law of God. See, I think that as Christians, oftentimes we don't allow God to to actually talk to us in different categories, right? So one category over here where there's truths that are there, another category over here where we believe things over here. And so oftentimes Christians will sort of have just a sweeping peanut butter statement that they make over the law of God. They'll, they'll run over into the Bible, they'll proof text, grab a text that says something like, we are not under law, but under what? Under grace. And, and they'll take that to mean that the law is really, in, in essence, just sort of irrelevant. And we're just under grace. The law of God is not something that's a concern of God any longer. It shouldn't really be a concern for us. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And so the law of God is just something that's not really important in the plan of God. You'll even have Christians that portray, this is true, it actually happens, portray the Bible in this sense, that the God of the Old Testament is sort of a harsh, mean law God, and the God of the New Testament is a nice, loving, gentle, gracious God. So you've got Jesus that sort of makes God look better, right? The God of the Old Testament's kind of mean and nasty, kind of sharp. Uh, just He's just kind of domineering, right? He's just so controlling and wants to control every aspect of your life. And then Jesus comes along and makes the God of the Old Testament look really great, right? If you guys listen to Apologia Radio, which I hope you do, um, uh, we actually played a clip where we were outside of the abortion clinic at this Planned Parenthood in Tempe, and we were out, you know, evangelizing and bringing the gospel, and someone came up to us, and they didn't like the signs we had. And they were complaining about the signs where it says, uh, God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. They didn't like the fact that we said God hates anything. They said, God is what? God is love. See, you knew, right? Okay. God is love. God doesn't hate anything. And that's, that's really a problem. I would just say, uh, just Google it. Okay. Uh, how many times God uses the word hate in the Bible and the things that he actually hates. But this uh, couple we met at the abortion clinic said, you know, God doesn't really hate anything and God really is love. And they, when we brought up passages from the Old Testament, the answer immediately was, well, that's the Old Testament. We're not under that anymore. We're under the New Testament. We're under the New Covenant. We're under Christ now, not under the Old Testament. And you would be surprised as to how pervasive this thinking is that really there's this dichotomy between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant that's so sharp that you don't even really appeal to the Old Testament unless unless the New Testament authors happen to mention something from the Old Testament. 
Uh, there is a popular view, a uh, semi-popular view held, held um, to by uh, many of my own friends and people that I respect and I love as brothers uh, called New Covenant Theology. And they would essentially say that the Old Testament, those passages, the law of God is essentially defunct and over in such a way that unless New Testament authors bring stuff over, you don't really appeal to it. It's really gone now and not relevant to us under the New Covenant. And so there really is a popular idea of the law of God that might, if you have adopted it, surprise you when you come to the New Testament text of Jesus saying, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Let's examine this for a second. I want you to memorize the Greek here because it's very important. Me namasete. Me, M-E is how you say it in the Greek. Me namasete. That in the, in the Greek is, uh, those are the words behind Jesus saying, do not think. And the way that's constructed in the Greek is this way. Do not even begin to think. I stressed this last week for a reason. Jesus isn't saying to people, stop thinking. This is really important. Listen, Jesus is the law keeper. Jesus has the mind of the psalmist in Psalm 119 about the law of God. He loves the law of God. He meditates Psalm 1 in the law of God day and night in his life. Jesus would have responded to the Father's law in exactly the way God intended for all of us to respond to it. And Jesus, the law keeper, the one who actually kept the law of God in the place of God's people and yet went to a cross as though he didn't, Jesus is now before people in his time, in his ministry, that would have easily debunked him, refuted him, and cast him aside if he had, listen, if he had treated the law of God in any way as bad or low, or if he in any way destroyed it, Jesus would have been easily refuted by his opponents if he had treated the law of God in a way so as to denigrate it or to lessen its force. And Jesus says to them, who were, who were there examining him, listening to every word, Jesus says, do not even begin to think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't even let it into your mind. Which I think, if you go back to what I said at the beginning as we started, stands in stark contrast to popular views of the law of God, even in Christian churches many times today. We think the law of God is not at all relevant and of course there are changes, amen, I'm saying that out at, in the front of this. Of course there are changes in administration, but we have so spurned the law of God in our current culture that we are now reaping the rewards of it. I think in our current culture, where Christians constantly recite, we're not under law but under grace, it could better be said in our generation, we're not under law but under disgrace. I borrowed that, by the way, from Dr. Bonson. That's free, though. But we have so treated the law of God in an unbiblical way that we are now reaping the rewards of it. And we need to really examine what does the Bible say about the law of God and what does Jesus mean here when he says, do not even begin to think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Well, again, the Greek there is menomasete, and it couldn't be clearer. Jesus is saying, again, not stop thinking, but don't even begin to think. 
then I've come to abolish it. But let's look at quickly, why would it be relevant that Jesus comes in and says, do not even begin to think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets? It's relevant, listen closely, because, and we love this as Christians, the Old Testament gives to us this beautiful, full orb portrait of the Messiah before he comes. And this is one of my favorite things about the Bible. It really is one of the things that I find most appealing about the Bible and so attractive about it is that God tells you history before it even happens. And he's told us the story of the Messiah before Jesus walked among us so that you could take that story of the Messiah that God gave before he comes and you could literally watch Jesus walk among people and you just see it unfolding before your eyes. That's how clear it is. Everything necessary to know and to trust in the Messiah, to know who he is and what his work would be, was written long before Jesus ever touched the earth in his earthly ministry. But listen closely. Don't even begin to think that I've come to destroy or abolish the law of the prophets is significant because... The Old Testament doesn't just tell you the portrait of the Messiah, not just this is who he is, Isaiah 9, 6, God in the flesh, God's coming as a son and as a child, not just where he's coming from, Micah 5, 2, and that it's God himself coming to Bethlehem, not just how he's going to die, what he's going to accomplish, but it tells you actually more about what God's going to do with the kingdom of the Messiah in real time and in real space. Now, two things, okay, if you're taking notes, if you like to do that, two things you can record right now as to why it's so significant that Jesus says, don't even begin to think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. It's because, listen, two things. The Old Testament talked about the mission of the Messiah in two ways, at least, at least. I'm not giving you every detail now, but at least two ways. One, salvation. The Messiah is going to bring salvation, and you have to hold this together in your mind to see that there's more to the story of the gospel of the kingdom than simply my salvation. So first is salvation. I'll give you a single text to work with because it's one of my favorites, Isaiah 53. How many of you guys have read Isaiah 53? If you haven't, go home and read that tonight with your family. Isaiah 53 is absolutely stunning. This is a passage written about 700 years before Jesus comes, right? And it tells you his entire life, his ministry, what he's going to accomplish. It's all right there. I mean, if you can read to a Jewish person today a single passage of Scripture about Jesus from the Old Testament, the Tanakh and the Torah, it got to be Isaiah 53. And what's it say in Isaiah 53? That he would be like a root out of dry ground. There was nothing about him that was going to attract them to him in the sense that like there's flowing robes and red carpets and all this pomp and circumstance from the beginning. In, a, in reality, there's something about the Messiah that's recited in those passages that he's lowly, that he's going to be marred beyond resemblance that he's like a root out of dry ground, that they were going to think that he was being punished for his own sins, but actually it was God laying on him the iniquity of us all. That's what it says long before Jesus comes, that he's going to be a substitute for God's people. He'd be pierced through for our transgressions. There's a wounding of the Messiah for the sin of God's people. Did you get that? Now, come with me for a second here, guys. Nobody in this room could ever say that about themselves. There is, there is no way, no place in God's justice 
for a sinner to actually die for another sinner to provide atonement and reconciliation. Why? Because we're sinners. Because my life can't represent you. And yet, long before Jesus comes, here's this time in the Bible where a human is going to be sacrificed. Not a, not a bull, not a goat, not an animal sacrifice. A human's going to be sacrificed for the transgressions of God's people. Did you catch that? A human being's going to die for the sins of God's people. Now, follow me here. It says that he would justify the many as he would bear their iniquities, that he'd be counted among the rebels, that he would be uh, with a rich man in his death, that he would die with the transgressors. And it says that he would see his seed. He would prolong his days. What is that? The death and the resurrection of Jesus in Isaiah 53. But you notice something here, brothers and sisters, watch this. It's so intimate. It's so intimate. And it really is incomprehensible. Because listen, here's why. It's the one thing, and this is just an aside. It's one of those things that you say about God that's incomprehensible. Like the things we talk about a lot. Like, for example, this is something that will you know, twist your mind up. God knows everything. Right? And not because God has to access that information. He just knows all things at all times and not only knows it, but decrees it. That'll twist you up, right? Like if I was to say to you, how many socks are in your drawer right now? How do you go about finding that out? You have to do what? Get up, go home, go to your sock drawer and look into your sock drawer to count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, and figure out how many socks are in that drawer. But if you were to ask God, God, how many socks are in uh, your drawer? God doesn't have to actually um, go and figure it out or access sort of his bank and figure out how many socks in that drawer. Not only does he know at all times all things, but he actually decreed whether or not you'd ask the question. God knows everything. That'll twist you up. But one thing that really, I think, blows my mind about God in Isaiah 53 about his salvation and the mission of the Messiah is it says this about the Messiah, that God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. So let's take a step for a moment into this as Christians. It says that the Father was pleased to crush Jesus for his people. I don't understand that. I don't comprehend that. And that's pretty beautiful. But that's the mission of the Messiah, that the Father's actually going to be pleased to crush Jesus for me. And that's powerful. There's more to the mission of the Messiah, and I want you to get these texts and have them ready. There is renewal. There is renewal in the mission of the Messiah. This is what's coming in the world, renewal. Isaiah chapter 2, I'm just going to give you the reference for now. Isaiah 2 is the promise that God is going to have the nations stream up to the mountain, a mountain higher than all the other mountains. The nations are going to stream up, come to God, and they're going to have the law of God go forth from Zion. Now get that down. Part of the mission of the Messiah is as he saves the nations, as they are drawn by God up to the mountain of God, God is going to have the law, the Torah, go forth from the people of God. So watch, it's not just salvation, it's the renewal of the world. The nations are being saved, coming up to the mountain of God, and the Torah is going to go forth from Zion. That's the central place of the people of God. So brothers and sisters, watch this. If we had a single text alone 
to work with from the Old Testament that describes the mission of the Messiah, what would we have? The nations coming to God and the Torah going forth from Zion. Where did we ever get the idea that the law of God is not a constituent part of the kingdom of the Messiah? Where did we ever get the idea that God is going to toss aside His law in the kingdom of the Messiah? The texts that talk about God's work in the Messiah's mission in the world, the texts that talk about it, talk about the law as a constituent element of that kingdom. Salvation and renewal. And in renewal, you have God's law and justice being done in the world. Another text, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. What does it say? Look over at the text, and if you're in Isaiah now, you can go to it. Isaiah chapter 9. Powerful Christmas text, right? Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Those are names of Yahweh, by the way. El Gibor, the mighty God, the Father of eternity, the Prince of peace. Now watch this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no And I told you two things, right? I said salvation and what? What was the second one? Renewal. Right there. There would be an increase of his government and of his peace. Now watch this. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now watch this. You might be thinking, Pastor Jeff, you've given us these passages. We've seen these passages. And here's what I want you to do with them now, brothers and sisters. Take them now and place them into your heart and treasure them up. Because these are essential texts about the mission of the Messiah in the world. Another text, Isaiah 11, go read it later, about the nations coming to God. Isaiah 42, I'm going to read it to you again. Isaiah chapter 42, I want you to hear it because it's all part of this story of the Messiah's mission. Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, that's Jesus, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will, listen, listen to this. He will faithfully bring forth what? Say aloud, guys. Justice. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Now listen. And the coastlands wait for his, what? Law. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says, listen, don't even begin to think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. So when Jesus comes in talking like that, you can say, praise God. He fits the bill. He matches the portrait that God gives to us. If the Messiah in this text 
is going to bring forth justice in the earth and the coastlands are going to be waiting for his Torah, then Jesus coming in saying, don't even begin to think that I've come to abolish it makes a whole lot of sense. Because Jesus, in his mission given to him by the Father, is not just going to save individual sinners. He is going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth and His word, his law word, is going to be something that now exists within his people so that they love God's law as redeemed people. And God brings forth justice throughout the earth as salvation goes forth and his law. Next, uh, text to look at, Ezekiel 36. We did this last week. Just go to the text later. What is God going to do in the new covenants? What does he promise he's going to do with our hearts? Tell me. He's going to remove the heart of what? Stone and put in a what? Heart of flesh. He's going to sprinkle what? Clean water on us so that we'll be clean. He will cleanse us of all of our idols. And it says what? He'll put his spirit where? Within us. And he will cause us to obey his what? Statutes. Brothers and sisters, listen closely. Ezekiel says... That in the new covenant, God's going to do something very unique. For his name's sake, he says, you've profaned my name among the nations, God says. And he says this, I will vindicate the holiness of my name. Here's how. I'm going to cleanse you of your sin, cleanse you of your idols. I'm going to give you a soft heart towards me, remove your rebellion. I'm going to put my spirit within you and I will cause you to observe my statutes. Now, brothers and sisters, quickly. When Ezekiel wrote that, it was pre-Christ. Did you catch this? Ezekiel wrote it as a monotheistic Jew under Torah. Let me say that again. He wrote it as a monotheistic Jew under Torah, long before Jesus came. And he says that what we're to anticipate is God washing his people, indwelling his people, removing their rebellion, and what? Causing them to obey his statutes. What statutes do you think Ezekiel had in mind? Which statutes did he know about? God's law. God's law, the known law. Now quickly, um, the text Jesus says, the text Jesus says, don't even begin to think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. If you missed last week, uh, repent um, first. Okay, if you missed last week, I want to at least read to you a portion of Dr. Bonson, uh, his exegesis of this text, I think is very important. And I want you to hear what these words mean, okay? So I'm going to read it again for the purposes of study as you guys maybe listen to this later or watch it later. Uh, Dr. Greg Bonson in his book, Theonomy, which just means God's law, I think did an excellent job of unpacking this text. I'm going to read to you what he says here um, about this particular text don't even begin to think, and what does it mean to abolish? Watch this. A technical analysis of 5, 17 through 19, can secure a proper understanding of its teaching. Menomasete is a prohibition expressed by means of an errorist, subjunctive, and negative. You're like, I have no idea. It's okay. Scholarly stuff. It's important. Okay. It means do not think. If Christ's enemies had basely slandered him by stating that his teachings were at variance with the law, this is not indicated in the text, for the error sense gives the verb 
gives the verb an ingressive force. Do not begin to think as opposed to stop thinking, which would require prohibition expressed in the present tense. The implication is that Christ knew the danger that his hearers or scribal opponents might misunderstand or willfully distort his doctrine of the law. So he commands them not to even start thinking that the Messiah abrogates the law. Now here's the word, ready? Katalusai. Katalusai is a teleconfinitive indicating that Christ did not come in order to annul. Katalusai is to annul, in order to annul. Make invalid or repeal the law. Listen closely to this. The sense of kataluo is that of dissolving or dismantling the destruction of something by separating its pieces. Listen. The word is particularly used of the destruction pulling down of an established building. Matthew 24, 2, 26, 61, 27, 40, Mark 13, 2, Luke 21, 6, Acts 6, 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, Galatians 2, 18. Dr. Bonson does his homework. This is the meaning of the word as it is used in language pertaining to physical objects. It is evident that kataluo must also carry a figurative usage for the literal imperialistic sense will not fit numerous contexts in which the dismantle appears. So the point is, Jesus is using a word that would have clarified completely towards his opponents what he meant and his feelings and his position to the law of God. So Jesus says, don't even begin to think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, what does it mean, law or the prophets? This was a common way of speaking about the whole of the Old Testament. The law of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Two examples should suffice. Let me give them to you right now. Matthew twenty-two forty. You already know this one. Matthew twenty-two forty. Jesus is asked what? Master... What's the greatest commandment in the law? So Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is what? You shall love your neighbor as what? You love yourself. And Jesus says what? That upon these two commandments rest all of what? The law and the prophets. So a common way of referring to the Old Testament was the law and the prophets together, this unified revelation that, this is really interesting, by the way, that the Jews had taken the books that you and I use, this text that we have as Protestants, the Jews had taken these books and laid them up in the temple as the divine books. Jesus and the apostles referred to these particular books, and they called them the law and the prophets. Another example of its usage is in Luke 16, 16. In Luke 16, 16, by the way, I want you to see this one. Okay, so go to your Bibles, Luke 16, 16. Luke 16, 16, I win. I was there first. If you're using a phone, you are a cheater, okay? Luke 16, 16, this is a good one. Go to that text. Another example. The law and the prophets were until John. That's speaking of John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. 
So this is an example of the law and the prophets being spoken of as a whole. So listen closely. Common in this day was this phrase, the law and the prophets, and it referred to the entirety of God's Old Testament revelation. So why is it important? Here's why it's important. Jesus says, don't even let it enter your mind that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. What's that mean? That whole revelation. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And we'll talk next week, hopefully, about what it means to fulfill it. Okay, quickly, here's what we need to do now. Okay, got it, got it. So are we convinced that Jesus doesn't want to abolish the law of the prophets? Okay, I'm convinced, okay? I hope you come along, okay? Now, we do have to ask the question, if we see a particular text in one place saying something, we do have to ask the question, is my understanding of that text consistent now with the rest of God's Word? We all know what it's like to talk to somebody that actually proof texts, right? And says, well, the Bible says this. What's the most popular proof text passage that every atheist in the world believes? Do not judge lest you be judged. Every atheist is a preacher at that moment, right? They're, they're, they are like the rabid street preacher, right? They're like, don't judge lest you be judged. Every atheist knows that. It's every atheist's favorite verse. It's also out of context when they use it against you when you bring the Word of God to bear on whatever situation you're talking about. But we do need to ask the question. I know. I have to recognize this. It's not enough to simply say, well, here's a verse that says something. Now, all God has to do is say something once, and it's straight gospel. Amen? We believe it, we follow it. But it's, it's appropriate as Christians, watch, to ask the question, what does tota scriptura say? What does all of the scriptures say? And let's check out the apostles' view on the law, okay? The apostles' view on the law. One, it could not justify anybody. Go there quick to Romans 3. Romans chapter 3, I want you guys to have your Bibles so that you know your way around them. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, it's always important, guys. Know your Bible. Know your way around it. Romans chapter 3, look what Paul says here about the law. After, in Romans 3.10, he says that no one is righteous, no one is good, no one seeks for God. He goes through this long list of passages from the Old Testament showing that all of humanity is under sin. He then says, listen, listen, he says, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and what? The whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now watch, you guys got to help me here for a second. What does it mean to be justified? Declared righteous, righteous-fied is one way to say it. So look, get this. God's the judge. We're the sinners in his court. We need the verdict of righteous. We need the verdict of you're declared righteous to be set free and brought to peace with God. Paul says, listen, 
as a student of Gamaliel, a very famous Jewish rabbi in the first century, as a Christian, Paul says this, no human being will be declared righteous by the law in God's eyes. Why? Because the law only increases our knowledge of sin. It shows us our sin, and when you give it to sinners, it even entices a bit of, I want to do that. And you know exactly what I'm talking about if you have kids that are about three years old, right? All these babies around here, get ready, okay? The law of God can justify nobody. Paul says in verse 28, I want you to see the passage. In verse 28, we hold, who's that? Him, the other apostles, the representatives of Christ, and the Christians, we hold that no one or sorry, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Brothers and sisters, if you need a single text that says you are justified by faith alone, this is a premier passage. We maintain, we declare that one is justified by faith apart from the works of law. Faith by itself apart from works of law is faith alone. So the apostles taught that the law could justify nobody. Number two, The apostles taught that the law was good, is good. Romans 7, stay in the same book, Romans 7, 12. The apostle Paul in Romans 7, 12 says about the law, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Brothers and sisters, why would I even think to bring this up? Here's why I want to bring it up. This is really important, and if you want to know something that's like a sensitive area for me, just as a Christian, as a pastor, this is a sensitive area for me. You'll oftentimes today see if there's, pro- if there's a conflict of, in some way between a Christian who holds to the abiding validity of God's law today and somebody that thinks that it's just defunct and over and God's not concerned anymore, you'll often see somebody bring up a question about the law of God like this. So you believe like rapists should get the death penalty, there will be people who profess faith in Jesus, who say they love Jesus and He's their Savior and Lord, and they'll ask questions regarding the law of God as though it was some low, base, despicable system. You believe, you believe that rapists should get the death penalty? You, you believe that adulterers should get the death penalty? And they'll act in some way as though God is just a big meanie or wrong in some way for suggesting. You see, here's the thing. God just didn't understand there are better ways to do things. Right? But what does Paul say here about the law? He says the law is what? Holy It is, the commandment is holy, it is righteous, and what? Good. Now, there's more to say about the law of God and the fact that the law of God is really much better than man-made systems of law, where our God actually has the victim of a crime, like adultery, able to actually release the adulterer and forgive him. Our modern system of law puts the obligation and the responsibilities into the hands of the state where there can be no mercy ultimately given by the victim. But 
I digress. Let's look further. So the apostles say that it is good. The law is good. Number three, the apostles' view of the law is that faith in Christ establishes the law. Go to it. I want you to see it. In Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verse 31. This is really important, guys. It's an important text. If you're going to memorize scripture, memorize this one. Romans chapter 3, after Paul says, listen, after he, so, he explains salvation by grace through faith so well that it provokes a question in Romans 5 that, or 6 that you should just continue in sin so that grace may increase. Think about this for a second. Listen, listen. He preaches the gospel so full of grace that it provokes the imaginary objector into saying, so you're saying you should just keep sinning to make grace bigger? People have said this, if you preach the gospel enough and you never get the response from somebody that, oh, so you're just saying you can sin all you want, you're probably doing it wrong. Because Paul preaches it so graciously and full of grace that, watch, it makes the imaginary objector in Romans 6 think that he's suggesting you could just keep on sinning. It's just grace, grace, grace. But after he does that in Romans 3, grace, gift, gift, faith, no works of law, all Jesus, all God. He says this, after all of that, he says, do we then, verse 31, overthrow the law by this faith? What's he say? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The Apostle Paul's view of the law is that it could justify nobody. And if you've been justified before God through faith in Jesus, that means now through this faith, you establish the law. You put it into its proper perspective, its proper place. And I want you to show you that right now. I want to show you it right now. Where does Paul say that? Go to your text. Romans chapter 8. This is where the Apostle Paul explains that we've actually been released from the law and its condemnation, and now we serve in the new way by the Spirit. Now watch it. It's amazing. How many of you guys have this first verse memorized? How many of you guys have the first verse memorized? There is therefore now, what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now we'll stop. Let's pause the message for a second and say, hallelujah. Seriously. If you know your past... You know your life, and you know your own hearts. These are words of life right here. These are the words that should change the course of your life, and these are the words that you should allow to wash over you guys every single day when you struggle with your own failures and all of your falling short. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, listen. No religion can offer you that. No man-made system can offer you that. No system can say to you, you are no longer condemned. You are at peace with God. There is nothing else. Every single man-made religion wants to say that there's something in you that needs to be fixed, changed, some righteousness that needs to come out, or some sin that needs to be gone and paid for in some way. Jesus is our perfect salvation, so that if you're in Jesus, hiding in Him, 
with his righteousness, the Father has given to you his righteousness, counted Jesus guilty in your place. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. You are loved. There is no wrath reserved for you. It was all exhausted in Jesus so that Paul can say this. If you're in him, by faith, there is therefore now no condemnation. Brothers and sisters, listen to what I'm saying to you right now. Listen. There are people in this room who are guilty of murder. You will never stand before God to give an account for that murder because Jesus already did. Was already counted guilty for it. There are people in this room who are guilty thieves and liars and adulterers and you will never ever answer to God in Christ for that sin because Jesus answered in full on your behalf. No condemnation. None. Not ever. You have Christ's righteousness, and Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4 that God will never count your sins against you, and He counts you righteous apart from works. But what is Paul's view of the law? Here, look, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that, listen, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, that's unbelievers, those who were in Adam, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who, are, who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Listen. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It for it does not submit to God's law. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Brothers and sisters, you've got to come with me here real fast because this is exciting stuff. Listen, Paul says this, under the law, in the flesh, in Adam, as a fallen person, all the law is to you is something that provokes you to sin, shows you your sin, and you cannot fulfill its righteous requirement because you're dead spiritually. Paul says here, though now you're in Christ, you're no longer condemned. You are not under the condemning aspects of the law. You've been set free by God's Spirit. You're now alive, not in the flesh, no longer in a place where you can't submit to God's law and cannot please Him. Now in Christ, indwelled by the Spirit, Alive from the dead, you now can fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. You are not in a place any longer where the law is death to you, condemning to you. You're alive. So when Paul, by the way, and the apostles say things like, listen, you are not under law but under grace, that's the context. You are not under the condemning aspects of the law. You're not under the obligation of the law to fulfill it perfectly because Jesus did it and now you're alive from the dead. 
The apostles say we've been, we've been released from its condemnation. Okay, now this gets pretty exciting for me. And this is where I think things should start to get wheels. Are you ready? Yes? We're going for a long time, but this is like Puritan-style preaching, right? Yeah? You guys ready for some more? Yes? Okay, this gets important. Now listen, listen, listen. This, this is where things, this is where people start to fall off the rails, okay? So this is important stuff. And I hope you have like a writing utensil and like if you needed coffee, you start drinking that coffee now and like focus, okay? This is important stuff, okay? The Bible displays to us in the New Testament that the apostles have, regarding the law of God, they have the assumption of continuity. If you need to write something down, write that down. The assumption of continuity. They just assume the law's validity and its continuity. And I'm going to give you examples of that. Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Now watch this. Now this gets really interesting, and I hope this catches. Christians will often say about Jesus' words, listen, Jesus says that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it and bring it to an end. Think about that, okay? What is that saying? If you take that interpretation, Jesus say, says that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to abolish it. That's not what Jesus means. To, to, to fulfill it means something greater and bigger and more beautiful, but we cannot say Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to abolish it. That's senseless, and it destroys Jesus' own statement. It makes it meaningless. Now listen, in the New Testament, you see the assumption of continuity, and when there is a change, and there are changes, in the law of God, things that you no longer do are no longer binding on the people of God to complete. When you see those changes, the apostles tell you, Here's a change, and here's why there's a change. So listen, there's the assumption of what? Continuity. I'm going to give you some examples. Ready? One, the assumption of continuity in the judicial process, Deuteronomy 19, 15. Everything shall be established on the basis of what? Two or three eyewitnesses. In the law of God... God commanded, listen, you must have two or three independent lines of testimony to bring a, an issue towards an indictment upon a person or justice. Listen, two or three witnesses. Boy, our judiciary today would learn a lot from that standard. Actual eyewitness testimony and independent lines of testimony. God says, Deuteronomy 19.15, two or three eyewitnesses. That has to do with the, the judicial process. How, does, how do the New Testament authors see it? Well, you already know this. This is one you know. Ready? Matthew 18. Church discipline. Who said it? Jesus. He says, if your brother sins against you, go to him what? What? Privately. And then if he won't listen, you bring... That's right. Did you see it? What is Jesus doing 
in the new covenant regarding church discipline. He's appealing to the law of God and its standards and applying its general equity and bringing it over into the new covenant saying, this is how you operate with each other. If somebody's in sin, you go to them privately. If they won't listen, you bring two or three others for what? Eyewitness testimony before you bring it before the church. Jesus uses that standard. 2 Corinthians 13.1 is another example in the New Testament where it's just assumed continuity. 1 Timothy 5.19. This is a big one. This is a big one. 1 Timothy 5.19, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, listen closely, receive no accusation against an elder unless there are two or what? Three eyewitnesses. Brothers and sisters, we do not, as Christians today, take this seriously. Can I tell you a very personal story? It doesn't have anything to do with me, but I witnessed it. I witnessed the result of abandoning God's word as the standard in the Christian church and how it caused havoc in people's lives. Years ago, this is a tough story, Pastor Luke and I and our families were at a church where we had a very close friend who was a pastor there. He was a youth pastor. And there was a girl who had a reputation for telling lies and creating stories um, who made an allegation that my friend, a pastor, had done things inappropriate to her. Now, what happened in the midst of this was my friend who was a pastor, an elder, was willing to do anything to prove his innocence. Saying, I will do anything. Take a lie detector test. Find evidence and whatever it takes. And what happened was, is the elders of that church immediately cut him off and stopped communicating with him, went into the world and found a worldly attorney, went to a high school and immediately installed the principal of that high school on as an elder of the church because he had experience in dealing with these sort of scandals before. The man was not an elder, had no right to be an elder, was not trained as an elder. He was installed immediately as an elder. And for a period of a couple of months, my friend, his life and marriage was brought under great strain, nearly destroyed. He did a lie detector test, passed it perfectly, demonstrated everything he could to prove that he was actually innocent, and eventually this girl came back and said that she had made it all up. How, brothers and sisters, could we have avoided something like that? Two or three eyewitnesses or independent lines of testimony and evidence. God's Word in the New Testament assumes the continuity with the old. That was when the judicial process. Here's another one. Ready? Kids, are you ready? Kids, ready? Yes? This is your favorite verse. It's your favorite. Ephesians 6, 2, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Favorite verse, right, kids? When you hear that verse, you're like, yay, mom and dad. Okay, Ephesians 6. Go there quickly because I want to show you something. Ephesians chapter 6. I want to show you the assumption of continuity. The New Testament apostles do not say the Old Testament is defunct, the law is defunct. 
It's no longer relevant. Oh, but I'm bringing this over. They assume it's continuity. Watch. Ephesians 6 from the Ten Commandments. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, here's an example, watch, of the New Testament apostles assuming the continuity of the law of God. They don't say, we know it's over and it's gone. Jesus died and rose again, but we're going to go ahead and keep this one. What do they do? They assume it's continuity. Here's another one. Romans 13, the Apostle Paul, and we did this before in in recent uh, time, the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 shows portions of the Ten Commandments. Watch this. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as, you, as yourself, love does no wrong to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Watch this. He appealed to the Ten Commandments. You all see it, right? Right? Don't covet, don't steal. You know those passages, right? I hope so. Does everyone in here know the Ten Commandments? Uh Uh-oh. Okay. He takes the Ten Commandments, and then he actually applies a passage from Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. He's applying the law of God, assuming its continuity, showing you that love is the fulfillment of the law. Who else said that? Jesus says what? Love God and what? Love neighbor. All the law and the prophets are upon this. Okay, quick one. Ready? Another example of the apostles assuming continuity, animal husbandry. We all love that, don't we? A lot of animal husbandry going on. How many of you guys raise chickens in your yards in Phoenix? Anybody got chickens in their yards? The Browns do. They have a rather large family. It's important they do that, okay? Okay. They raise chickens. I would love to. I would love to raise my own chickens and rabbits and do those sorts of things. I, I really would love it. It's kind of hard with the restrictions the government puts upon us, which is a, another important aspect of the law of God. Okay, But animal husbandry laws, we don't think a lot about this because we don't do a lot of it ourselves. But God says in Deuteronomy 25, 4, you are not to what? Muzzle the ox while it treads. God actually told them how to take care of their animals. Don't muzzle the ox while it treads. In other words, don't put something over its face while it's treading the grain so it can't eat while it does it. You're going to kill your animals, dummies. Right? That's what he's telling them. Don't muzzle the ox while it treads the grain. Let it eat or it's going to die. Take care of your animals. Let it eat. But watch. They understand, the people of God understood, you take the principle in that command and you apply it elsewhere like the Apostle Paul does in 1 Timothy 5.18. He's talking about pastors. He's talking about pastors who labor for the flock as a full-time thing and they lay their lives down for other people in ministry. And he says to the people of God, he says this, 
Take care of your pastors. Don't muzzle the ox while it treads. What's he saying? You better take care of your pastor or he's going to die. Right? The point is, is Paul saying, God commands us not to muzzle the ox while it treads. So, churches, take care of your full-time leaders. That's what he's saying. What does he do there? He applies the law of God to a current circumstance, assuming it's continuity. He takes a general equity of that law and he applies it today. Now quickly, how about the judicial sanctions of the old covenant law? How does God feel in a new covenant about that? I want you to see it. And this is the last thing for today. First Timothy, go there quickly. First Timothy, New Testament, first Timothy chapter one. This is the apostle Paul. Now listen, post cross, Post-resurrection, post-ascension, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension. Why am I saying that? Because we need to know that the apostles, after the ministry, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, felt this way about the law of God. Here's what Paul says about the judicial sanctions of God's law. That means like the penalties, the criminal penalties for God's, in God's law. Listen, in verse, chapter 1, verse 8, now we know that the law is good. Is that present or past tense? Present tense. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now quickly, what was the judicial penalty for some of those Sins and crimes in the Old Testament. What was it? Capital punishment. Paul says, it is good. It's not for the just, but for the unjust. And watch what he says at the very end. Verse 11. All of this in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Watch. Does he say that the law of God with all those judicial sanctions is in opposition to the gospel. No, he says it's in what? Accordance with the gospel. Brothers and sisters, as we look at the text before us, Jesus saying, do not even begin to think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We begin to see that Jesus has the right heart and mind towards the law of God that was necessary for him to be our Messiah. And we also see in the context of God's entire revelation, God's plan for the world is not merely the salvation of individual sinners, but for the nations to come to God, for God to establish justice, and for his Torah to go forth from the people of God, from renewed hearts with the very presence of the Spirit of God within them. We see that that is God's plan for the world. Isaiah 42, Jesus is going to establish justice in the earth 
and the law of God is going to be something the coastlands wait for. Brothers and sisters, we see that the law cannot justify any of us, that God calls it good, that because of faith we actually establish the law, and that the law of God, listen closely, is assumed in its continuing validity today by the New Testament apostles. Are there changes? Yes. And I ought to do this very important thing, and I think this says it all. Let me do this. I didn't plan on doing this necessarily, but I think I should. I want you to hear it. Hebrews. Hebrews. Go there quickly. Hebrews. This, by the way, is one of the most powerful things. I don't know... We are not ever going to be able to mine this book and tap it of all of its beauty and resources. Now, listen, there's the assumption of continuity, but the New Testament apostles and writers, they tell us when there's a change of administration, they say, though we did this, it's fulfilled now in Jesus, so now we no longer do it in the shadowy way. We have the very substance who is Christ. So can I give you an example just by reading it to you? When there's a change in God's law and administration of it, God tells us, and He tells us why oftentimes. I just want to read it to you. I want you to hear it to show you the difference between the assumption of continuity and the explanation of the change. This is amazing. Hebrews 9, 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim and of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Not ours, His. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Now freeze. This is important stuff, right? Because that's in the law of God too. All the ritual washings and the priesthood and the temple and the animal sacrifice So what of those? Ready? 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, 
but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats, of, of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Brothers and sisters, here is a premier example of how the law of God and all of its shadows pointing to Jesus now is no longer something binding upon us because Jesus entered once for all. And that means no more reminder of your sins. There's no more reminder of your sins. There's no more annual, okay, guys, get together. Remember this, you're a sinner and you're guilty before God and you will have to give an account. Jesus entered once for all and he purified us with an eternal sacrifice that is relevant forever. And brothers and sisters, now you and I can approach God and his throne without fear because now we relate to God in a new way no longer condemned by Him, and now with within us a love for His law. We relate to God in an entirely different way now because of what Jesus has done. Watch this. You still have a temple today. It's a heavenly one. You still have a high priest today who intercedes for you. He'll never die again. You still have a sacrifice that's relevant today. It's just done forever, once for all. And guess what? You still have the law of God today. Now, though, it's no longer on stone tablets outside of you. Now, God, by His Spirit, has placed it within you. That's glorious. Hallelujah. Let's pray. I pray, God, you'd bless the message that went out today. For the glory of Christ and for our growth, I pray, God, that you would encourage us to love the deep things of God. Grant to us affections, God, for you and your word that would allow us to love Again, the deep things of God. Allow us to see, God, how glorious you are in giving us your word that shows all these complexities and all these beauties. I thank you, God. Thank you that you gave me the privilege, God, today to do it, to get before your people, to tell them about you and your word and your law. In Jesus' name, amen.